Sometimes I like to imagine the world after us, the strange mammals that will emerge, the abundance of biodiverse plant life taking over our fields and factories and so on. I don't think this world will be better. I maintain that we are the most interesting thing to happen on Earth, and there is real beauty and meaning in our curiosity and compassion, even as we also cause and witness so much suffering. But at any rate, there will be a world after us, after each of us. And that's why there's life insurance. It exists to provide a financial safety net to those who love and count on you. Policy Genius's technology makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from America's top insurers in just a few clicks to find your lowest price. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Policy Genius. Because there will be a world without us. Dear Hank and John. Or as I prefer to think of it, Dear John and Hank. It's a podcast where two brothers answer your questions, give you dubious advice, and bring you all the week's news from both Mars and AFC Wimbledon. John, Catherine recently started not eating meat, and I was yep. just so, so shocked. It was like it was like a whole new person had walked into the house. It's like, I mean, it's like I've never seen her before. That's a hard no for me, Hank. That's yeah, a- I also hated it, John. Sometimes, look, we have a lot of things we have to do in our lives. The dad joke is one of them for me, and it's not always going to go perfectly. Uh, but still, we have to do the tasks that are required of us. And I've done it now. I did the task. I would submit. And some, somebody out there liked it. Some person. I would submit that of the things we have to do, <laughs> you delivering a dad joke on our Fake advice yeah, it's podcast indicative. is pretty far down the list. It's indicative of the rest of, yes, be, but be, but only because I had a number of other things that I had to do that were Let's not Let's imagine a joke. situation uh-huh. where you not telling a dad joke on an episode of Dear Hank and John negatively affects the universe in even the smallest possible way. It would negatively affect my universe because I feel like I have created an obligation, a responsibility, an expectation mm-hmm. that I will deliver a mediocre to uh, poor dad joke. And if I do not, if I cannot deliver on that, John, what can I deliver upon? It is true that in strange times, it is helpful for me to do the things that I am supposed to do. Like meeting deadlines is more helpful to me now than it was eight weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And that is an example of me desperately trying to yes and your ridiculous assertion that saying a dad joke on Dear Hank and John is important. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I, I, I am happy to have your charitable understanding of my situation. Let's answer some questions from our listeners, beginning with one, Hank, that is a proper emergency. And we don't have that very oh, often. Oh, well, I'm glad that they I'm glad that they did this to the, for a podcast that records once a week. Yeah. And also, they asked this question in April. So, <laughs> you know, 
dot, 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 he gestures uh-huh. broadly. Mm-hmm. Lillian writes, Dear John and Hank, I just released a hundred or so crickets into my small apartment while doing mm-hmm. research for my dissertation. <laughs> Parenthetical note, my bathtub is currently filled with butterflies, spiders, and crickets that I'm doing a behavioral study on while the lab is closed. (laughs) What should I do about this? Crickets and chaos, Lillian. Everything about this is gold, Hank. But the thing that is the most gold for me is imagining Lillian's future dissertation Mm -hmm. in which Lillian describes... Oh, yeah, you gotta do the methods. The setting... Right? Mm -hmm. Where -hmm. it's like the crickets were contained in a large porcelain oval. (laughs) (laughs) Two feet by five feet. Standard size of an American bathtub. Not saying it was an American bathtub, but it was the size of one. They, they are—they must be in cages in the bathtub because I think that just being in a bathtub with all of those other things would significantly affect the behavior of the insect. Well, that's what I'm thinking. Is the dissertation about how captive crickets deal with, with global pandemics? Because that is an interesting <laughs> question to me. <laughs> Oh, God. Butterflies and spiders and crickets. Man, if I'm a cricket, I'm terrified of this bathtub. And I also want to get out. So I'm not surprised that they did. Even as a human, I'm a a little scared of it. (laughs) Here's the thing, Hank. I actually have a relevant anecdote, which is very rarely the case. Oh, okay. I, I mean, I have a relevant anecdote, and I'm curious whether it's the same one. Years and years ago, we... So far, so good. ...had a cricket. When we were children, there was a cricket in our house. Mm. Do you remember Uh this? I think I do. And dad Uh went absolutely bonkers Bonkers. trying to find the cricket. And it would- The drawers were open. The the clothes were everywhere. He took the drawers out of the dresser. The dresser was on the floor. Took all the clothes everywhere. And, and the chirping would not stop. It would just would be stop. periodically, there would just be a quick chirp. And by the time it was over, yes. we would all mm-hmm. be like, where, where was, was it? Where did it come from? Where did it come <gasps> from? And it was so and then, like it was so inconsistent. And it was such like the hardest noise in the world to pinpoint. Here's the thing. It wasn't inconsistent. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it, it was spa- it was happening. It was it was spaced extremely consistency. It just was very it was rare. It wasn't like repeated. It seemed inconsistent to us. Yeah. And so Turn, turns out it was it was mathematically consistent. Basically, the entire house was ransacked searching for this cricket. <laughs> And I mean, we were all, all in on looking for the cricket. Nobody could find the cricket. And it was maddening. But only because dad had gone so hard. Yes. Like we were all like ready to go to bed and we were like, there's a cricket. It's okay. But then dad starts going so hard and we're like, well, I guess we're all in it. We're a family. Right. And so we're, we're going to, we're, we will also like unscrew the portable television to see if it's in there. And to be fair, it was a ridiculous situation. Like, we were talking about a relatively small amount of space in which we could not find a cricket that was Mm -hmm. chirping, as it turns out, very, very regularly. Yeah, and making the the exact same noise at a very precise interval. (laughs) Because it turns out it was not a cricket. It was the low battery warning for the smoke alarm. (laughs) 
was hours. And then when when he finally realized it, it was the yeah. most like simultaneously like relief and like <laughs> just desperation, desperate anger. Yeah. Oh, it was gold. Uh-huh. <laughs> anyway, Lillian, are you absolutely sure that your smoke alarm batteries have been replaced recently? Yeah. Are these definitely, it sounds like they're definitely crickets. I sounds like there's definitely a hundred or so. By the way, the most distressing thing is the hundred mm-hmm. or so crickets, because that makes me realize that- Right, like, if you knew exactly. But if you're wrong by two or three crickets, like if it's uh-huh. 102 or 97, we're talking about two crickets, which is a lot of crickets to have yeah. in an apartment. Which is, yeah, functionally the same as a hundred. <laughs> Uh, that's the that's the real problem. So so you don't know precisely how many crickets there are, which is a huge issue. But you do know, and this is important, and it is the only thing that will give you hope in these coming hours and days, weeks, and perhaps months. There is a finite number of crickets in your home. That means this problem is solvable. <laughs> it will not seem that way. It will seem as if there are an infinite number of crickets. And knowing what I know about crickets, I don't th- I don't know. Like, first of all, they can make more of themselves. What do crickets eat? Food. Hank, that is a lovely idea that there is a finite number of crickets in Lillian's apartment. And mm-hmm. I would agree with it if crickets were infertile. And maybe these crickets are <laughs> sterile. Otherwise... <laughs> I would argue that there is a finite number of crickets in Lillian's apartment in exactly the same way that like life itself is finite. And yeah, there's there's also a finite number of crickets in the in the world. Exactly. But I wouldn't want all of them in my house. And I think functionally Lillian might have a ongoing cricket problem. Because I'm assuming there's going to be some level of cricket reproduction, et cetera. I just looked up what crickets eat because if you because they can't make babies if they can't eat food. And what I have discovered about crickets is they eat exactly what you and I do. They will eat Mm. pretty much anything. They'll eat Mm. squash. They'll eat fish flakes. Well, we don't eat fish flakes. They'll eat. I'd try. They'll eat wheat. They'll eat bread. They'll eat potatoes. They'll eat. Fruits, they'll eat vegetables, they'll eat meat. Wow, okay. They'll eat so, cabbage. They eat all of the same things that people do. So what you need to do is not have any food in your house. So you're probably not going to be able to deny them all sources of food. I have a somewhat different idea, Hank. Uh-huh. I would see this as an opportunity, an opportunity to create an Instagram or YouTube account <laughs> called Getting rid of Lillian's crickets in which you chart your like seven year long story mm-hmm. of trying to get rid of all the crickets in your apartment. It's, yeah, it's uh, Instagram dot com slash where I found a cricket. I would I, I would subscribe to that. Do you subscribe to Instagram accounts? I don't I don't also don't know if Instagram dot com slash is a thing that works. <laughs> it is. There you go. Lillian, instead of seeing this as a disaster for your dissertation and indeed your quality of life, you've got to see it as an opportunity for social media magnateness. Yeah, and potentially scientific research. Who knows what you could learn from studying these cricky, cricky boys? I'd love to read a dissertation that's that's called um, <laughs> removing 100 or so <laughs> crickets from one person's apartment. <laughs> An exhaustive and indeed exhausting study. (laughs) 
This next question comes from Nick, who asks, Dear Hank and John, I feel as if spending a copious amount of time on screens has become inescapable. I'm in summer school, where all of my lectures, labs, and homework are all online. The only way to interact with my friends is online. Libraries are closed, and the only way to read books is online, not to mention all of the things that were online before this. And I'm feeling constantly guilty about all of this time I spend staring at screens, and it is limiting my enjoyment of this stuff. Please help. Mortem vitat coram te, Nick. You know what that Is means that? in Latin, Hank? No. Death something. No, it means there will always be crickets in Lillian's apartment. That's the literal <laughs> translation. <laughs> yeah. Uh, life uh, finds a way. Uh, um, <laughs> I think that this is such an interesting thing because because screen time is one of these things, and it, and this has been various throughout history. Television when I was a kid certainly was was the thing. But for a, for a long time, like novels were this way. It's like the thing that is like almost most enjoyable or that is the most default or easy to do activity. We have to find ways to limit ourselves from indulging in that or engaging in that so that we can like do the other stuff. And so one of the ways that we do that is we sort of find the things that are bad about it. And then we remind ourselves of those things. And then we write think pieces about them and old people yell about them because they didn't have them when they were a kid. And so it's a little bit weird. And and we worry about them. And it's totally, this is like a little bit annoying, but it's a little bit normal. It's It's a thing that we inevitably do. But In reality, playing video games can be really fulfilling and fun and interesting. Reading a novel can be the same way. Watching television can be something that you indulge in in a really productive way that constructs instead of destructs. And I think that in general, the the concept of screen time as a negative thing is something that we are having to a little bit reevaluate because, of course, not all screen time is created equal. And anything that is allowing us to be social right now, particularly, and also things that are allowing us to continue our education are so valuable. And we need to separate those things from this negative perception of screen time that we created over the last 20 years. You know, we should be spending time doing things off screens, but it is not always all bad. And and sort of like pretending like screen time is is like, eating Lucky Charms for dinner, it isn't always that. It can be, but it isn't always that. I disagree with almost everything you just said. Okay, then- The only thing I agree with (laughs) is that eating Lucky Charms for dinner is not a problem. (laughs) And there's, to me, like one of the great insanities of 21st century life is the idea that certain kind of refined carbohydrates should be associated with certain meals and not others. <laughs> like okay. hash browns right. for breakfast, <laughs> but not for dinner. At dinner, we have a different kind of potato. Let me adjust and say that it's like Lucky Charms for breakfast, which is equally terrible. Lucky Charms for breakfast There's no is no good fine. time for Lucky Charms. Yeah, so screen time is exactly like Lucky Charms in that it is completely fine as long as you don't overuse it. And right now, the way that screen time functions in our life is different from the way that it functioned in our life three months ago. Right. And it's also hopefully different from the way it'll function in our lives a year from now. Yeah. Screen time is not one thing. Mm -hmm. Screen time is not Lucky Charms. Screen time is Lucky Charms and broccoli and spinach. It's it's what kind of screen time you're using. That said, Nick, I think... If you feel like you need time away from screens, you probably do need time away from screens. And 
I have a recommendation for you, which is to make a phone call. Mm. Because when you make a phone call and you're not talking to someone on video chat, you're not really where you are and they're not really where they are. And you're not looking at their background and you're not looking at yourself up in the top corner. You're in some other space. You're in some third space that I find at least like pretty good for my brain and somewhat relaxing for my brain. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I think making a phone call once a day is a really good habit to be in. Now, hilariously, Hank is totally right that when we were kids, we were taught that like just sitting on the phone all day and watching TV was going (laughs) to absolutely destroy us. (laughs) Yeah. And look at us now, stuck inside of our houses, staring at screens 22 hours a day. We did it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and we and we have survived. I mean, one one thing that that I do really want to emphasize about this whole situation is how resilient uh, all humans are, particularly young people, but also all people. But uh, we are also much more resilient when we are able to connect with people and and sort of like feel the importance that we fill in other people's lives and ascribe the importance that other people fill in our lives and let them know that and and believe it, which is real, but it is easy to forget. There's a lyric from the Mountain Goats that I've been thinking a lot about amid all of this, which is, you were a presence full of light upon this earth, and I am a witness to your life and to its worth. Mm-hmm. And to me, when it comes to screen time and when it comes to everything else, I try to ask myself, is this helping me to be a presence of light? And is it helping me to acknowledge the humanity and and worth of other people's lives? We have many, I think Twitter is a good example of this, but we have many ways of sort of like filling the craving for social interaction without actually fulfilling the need of it. Yeah. And... That is, I think, really dangerous. And phone is such a good, it's such a good call, John, because there really is something different about it. All right, Hank, we got another question from Annie who writes, Dear John and Hank, there is a book that I really want to read that comes out July 7th. I believe that book <laughs> might be a beautifully foolish endeavor, Hank, your new novel. Uh-huh. I'm very excited for people to read it. It's so good. It's so uh, relevant. I don't know how else to say it. Yeah. Uh, Annie goes on to say, but normally I buy books in pocket format. So this is a Canadian thing. Pocket format is Canadian for paperback, I think. Okay. Just All because right. Annie later in the in the email says that she, she's from Canada. Should I wait for the pocket book to come out? It just, it feels so Canadian every time she writes it. Pocket book. <laughs> Super cute. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a good summary of how Americans feel about Canadians just in general. Yeah. It's just we think we think y'all are just adorable. And also we're envious of your life expectancies and your <laughs> healthcare systems. Your timber. Your space, all of the space. Those mounties. Yeah. You got rocks there. I guess we got rocks too. Our rocks suck. Who are we kidding? <laughs> okay. Should I should I wait for the pocketbook to come out? That is so cute. I the, the repetition of it, I like it more every time. <laughs> or should I pre-order the hardcover to have it faster? Also, I read the first one as an audiobook and I really loved it. But then again, that means waiting, doesn't it? Furthermore, as an author, what difference does it make for you if I get it in hardcover or pocketbook or on audiobook? Annie. 
Well, first, first thing to say is that the audiobook comes out at the same time as the book. So that doesn't mean waiting. If you want to get the audiobook, please do. I'm having a ton of fun work, and I'm assuming you're talking about my book that comes out July 7th. And I'm having a ton of fun working on the, the, the audiobook right now. I care a lot about audio as a format because I consume the majority of the books that I read through um, Libro FM and Audible. So that is my, that's my world. And I care a lot about it. And I, I think a lot about how it will feel as an audiobook. I am very into changing things very slightly for that medium because there are certain things that are hard to say um, or that uh, visually distinguish something when you're reading and finding other ways to sort of orally distinguish something when a, when something is changing, like text format or something like that. So that's that's all stuff that I think about a ton and uh, and that I really care about. And, and I'm really excited about this audiobook because it is a little bit different from the first one where it where it gets to be a little bit more fun, do a little bit more extra stuff because it's from from multiple point of views. Um, it's not like a performed thing where there's, you know, dialogue back and forth, which I don't really like, but it is, uh, it, it does give me an opportunity to work with multiple narrators and stuff. So audiobook is great if you want to do that. It feels like that answers your question, but hardcover is very different from pocketbook or paperback for, from the author's perspective. Um, one, you get paid more for, for a hardcover, but more importantly than that, it matters like the this sort of like trajectory of book sales uh, being heavy in the beginning that increases the amount that the publisher is interested in marketing the book. It, it, it sort of increases buzz generally if people are sort of all talking about it at the same time. So I do, authors in general, want people to sort of all read soon after the book comes out in order to create some amount of buzz. Yeah, it's really hard to get any level of attention in the wider culture for any book well, or anything right now. Yeah. Yeah. But especially for any book. I mean, if you think about the fact that four or 500 books are released by fairly large publishers every month, it's extremely difficult to get broad attention for more than one or two of those books. Mm -hmm. And that's part of what makes publishing a challenging business in general, but like a really yeah. challenging business right now. I, I think that lots of businesses are going going through this, but it's been a very, very difficult time for, for publishing and for bookstores. I understand why people get frustrated that they can't buy paperbacks when a book first comes out, that they can't make that choice, yeah. like that it basically excludes them from people who prefer paperbacks from being in that initial conversation around a book. Mm -hmm. And I... I, I kind of feel like this is an outmoded way of thinking about publishing that being yeah. so obsessed with format, mm -hmm. like regular people don't really think about the differences between hardcover and paperback as anything other than like price and weight. Yeah. And, and like, and, and like hardness, like yeah. ability to hurt me if I accidentally drop it on my face. Right. It, if you explain to most people that an author gets paid four or five or in some cases seven times as much for a hardcover sale as they do for a paperback sale, I think most people would be like, what? Why? Yeah. And it, it feels a little outdated to me, but that yeah. is the way that publishing still is. And publishing mm -hmm. is because it has been around for a long time. It's a fairly, I mean, obviously a fairly mature business by a long time. I mean, like, you know, 600 years. It's <laughs> a little slow to innovate at times. <laughs> yeah.
<laughs> you know, they've been through a lot. They've they've done innovation. Yeah. Uh, and they know that innovation takes place on the scale of decades in, in their industry rather than on the scale of uh yeah. weeks or months the way that it does in a lot of a lot of the you know industries that John and I are in. Yeah. But that said, you should really Pre-order Hank's book. It's called <laughs> A Beautifully Foolish Endeavor, which is also a really good description of humanity and everything else. Two other things. First, library is this is the same. If you can if you can get it at the library, it's not really about the, you know, the the amount of money that I make from the sale. It's about the timing of it. So if if you can if you can call your library and be like, save this one for me, I'll pick it up the day it comes out. That that may be a thing that you can do. And then, you know, obviously digital formats, audio are all all, all also good. And also Libro FM is a place where you can, instead of like bookshop.org, which lets you buy physical books from your bookstore, Libro FM will let you buy audiobooks from your bookstore, but it functionally operates exactly like Audible. It's a subscription and you get credits and it costs almost the same exact thing. And uh, But like the, the money gets split between a bookstore of your choice and Libro, which then of course has to actually serve you the book. Yeah, so it's an alternative to creating trillionaires, basically. Yeah. We can call it what it is. John, this next question comes from Anne, who asks, Dear Hank and John, I have had several dreams, some of them recurring, in which Nicolas Cage is my uncle. No way. (laughs) It's like my dreams in which John Cena is like my personal trainer and life coach. (laughs) He's just always telling me I'm doing a great job and that he loves me. John, last night I had the uh, recurring anxiety dream that that I, I have had many times and I think everybody else has also had where you have to take a class where you have to take a test for a class you haven't been to all semester. Yes. And I have a a thousand times I've had this dream and I'm 40 years old. I haven't taken a class in a really long time, but you know what happened? I, I took the test instead of like freaking out about it. I was like, what? It's 2020. Like, yeah. How is this possibly going to matter? And I just took the test and I was like, I bet I got a C on that. <laughs> and at no point did I experience anxiety. I, love, I was like given an anxiety dream by my subconscious. Yeah. And my, my subconscious was like, eh, no big. Have you seen everything? This is a test. I love that even in your dreams, when anxiety approaches, you are like, no, I'm not going to give in to you. I think I'm I think I've got better coping skills than you're allowing for. (laughs) Yeah, I have this recurring dream and we'll get back to Annie's question in a second. But this is not my recurring dream about John Cena, although that is my favorite recurring dream, because John Cena is just such a kind and generous presence in my dreamscape in a way that no one or nothing else is. But one of my other favorite dreams is I have a dream where I discover like a key and there's a door in my house that I've never seen before. Mm -hmm. And the key opens up the door Mm -hmm. and there's this room in this home I've lived in for a long time that is like a wonderful new room that I didn't know about and I get to explore. Mm -hmm. And I was just thinking about that recurring dream because that is how a beautifully foolish endeavor made me feel. It made me feel like there were like all of these undiscovered rooms inside my mind that you kept like opening up. And it was like, I don't know, it was like reading a Jules Verne novel or something. It was so, it was great. It was very, I really liked the book. But back to Annie's question. Thanks, John. She writes, I have no particular ties to Nicolas Cage. None of us do, Annie. None of us do. (laughs) Outside of my affinity for the film's national treasure and ghostwriter, Mm. I was with you for the first half of that comment. (laughs) You had me in the first half, I'm not going to (laughs) lie. 
So my confusion as to why he is my uncle within my subconscious should be understandable. He appears to be whatever I need, some kind of sketchy getaway, like if I'm being chased by hitmen. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> my question is, what do these dreams mean? John, I don't, like, I've just gone to the Nicholas cage family tree and i am astounded oh you don't know who nicholas cage's parents are no nicholas cage's uncle is francis ford coppola coppola but yes i've heard it both the ways. wine magnate I've... <laughs> I've heard it both ways jason schwartzman is nick cage's yeah cousin indeed also francis ford coppola's grandson no that's from a different brother it's from Talia, oh. the sister. <laughs> mm, that's right. Sorry. There, are, this this family tree has has more blue Wikipedia links than any other <laughs> family tree. <laughs> oh my oh. god! Wow, Jason Schwartzman, huh? Nick Cage does have a bunch of nieces. If yeah, you know, so maybe you're one of those. It, it is apparently everyone is related to the Coppolas. First off. Annie, I've just looked again at your letter and I've noticed that your name is Anne. <laughs> <laughs> Not you aren't the first time that we've done that. <laughs> so so I'd like to apologize for that. I'm clearly not your uncle. I think that you're having Nicolas Cage as your uncle because in the National Treasure films, he has uh, uncle vibe. I don't know how to say it. Yeah. A generous uncle energy. And in some ways, like you need that cool adult you can trust in your life who mm -hmm. isn't your parents, yeah. who you can go to and you can be like, listen, I messed up or mm -hmm. this weird thing is happening that I don't feel comfortable talking to my parents about. And then you go kayaking with Uncle Nick and he just like takes you out on the lake. Yeah. And you talk about it. And he tells you about the fact that he has one of the world's largest collections of Elvis memorabilia. Yeah, then he once bought a mirror that was so expensive he went bankrupt. Is that true? I made that up. That just seems like an uncle thing. That, by the way, is a really beautiful idea. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to like, see I, myself. Yeah, I don't know if you're... If you're totally locked with the novel, but if you're not, you should really <laughs> insert in somebody somewhere. who goes bankrupt buying a very expensive mirror. <laughs> in a way, isn't that what bankrupts a lot of billionaires? Yeah. In the end, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. he did. He did uh, spend 150 million dollars on a dinosaur skull. Boy, that seems high. Uh, it was not just a dinosaur skull. It was a number of other things, uh, including two European castles. It was a confusing headline. <laughs> <laughs> Again, have we have to, encapsulated have... the modern experience in such a brief amount of time. <laughs> I would have really enjoyed being in the audience for that Christie's auction <laughs> where they're like, okay, so we've got a dinosaur head, wait for it, and two castles. <laughs> Plus, hold on, there's more. A diamond necklace. And a picture of yourself that gets older as you stay young. Yeah. We have the body of Dracula. <laughs> we have a... Uh, he also bought a $150,000 Superman comic, which makes sense because he named his child after Superman. I know. Not just... A, not like in a cool way. He named his child Cal-L. Yeah, Cal-L. That's just... That's not, that's not uncool. 
In what universe is that uncool? I guess, actually, now that I think about it, if my name was Carl L. Cage, I would walk around feeling supremely confident all the time. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that's the thing that's holding you back. <laughs> I really should have named my children Carl L. Cage. Yeah. And then in parentheses, green. Which reminds me, John, that this podcast is brought to you by one dinosaur skull and two European castles. <laughs> one dinosaur skull and two European castles. I'll set you back about $150 million. Today's podcast is also, of course, brought to you by the Crickets in Lillian's apartment. The Crickets in Lillian's apartment, semi-permanent. And this podcast is brought to you by Lucky Charms for dinner. It's just as bad as Lucky Charms for breakfast. Which is to say that it's fine sometimes, just don't overdo it. <laughs> and of course, today's podcast is brought to you by uh, A Beautifully Foolish Endeavor. A Beautifully Foolish Endeavor, oh. July 7th, everywhere books are sold and audiobooks. That is correct. But not paperbacks. We also have a Project for Awesome message from Matthew Palka in Binghamton, New York to the Tuataria Discord. Close to when I'm typing this message is the third anniversary of Tuataria or Triataria, as we awesomely decided to call it. <laughs> Enjoying, contributing to, and seeing how Tuataria has been collaboratively created from the start of 2017 constantly fuels my spirit and my gratitude on top of how I've loved being in a decade-long shared walk with Nerdfighteria so far. It all matters to me so much. Thank you, Tuataria. Woo woo. That's lovely. And Tuataria is this wonderful community that grew out of some of the work that Hank and I do. And it's just a great place where people. So listen, your toilet is massively gross, like it's grosser than you think. In fact, bacteria and viruses can hang around in the toilet bowl even after multiple flushes. And I recently found the easiest way to clean my toilet, Blue Land's Sustainable Toilet Cleaner Tablets. Just drop, watch it fizz, brush, and flush. It is truly that simple. No more scrubbing for hours. Plus, the tablets are plastic-free. Blue Land is on a mission to eliminate single-use plastic by reinventing cleaning essentials to be better for you and for the planet with the same powerful clean that you're used to. Blue Land products are effective and affordable, and their toilet tablets are proven to work on a wide range of toilet stains, including rust, mineral deposits, lime scale, and hard water. And you can even get more savings by buying refills in bulk or setting up a subscription. Blue Land has a special offer for our listeners. Right now, you can get 15% off your first order by going to blueland.com slash dearhank. You won't want to miss this blueland.com slash dearhank for 15% off. That's blueland.com slash dearhank to get 15% off. We'll make all kinds of wonderful things. You can learn more at tuataria.com. John, this next question comes from Kelsey, who asks, Dear Hank and John, can you sneeze underwater? Has anyone ever tried this? Not Khaleesi or Kelsi. Kelsey. It's, it's spelled with S-I at the end, so it's confusing. Um, not only is it possible, Kelsey, not only have I done it a bunch, but we also talked about it at length on this podcast in an episode entitled The Top Three Best Things About Sneezing Underwater, and I question whether you've listened to every single episode of Dear Hank and John. I mean, to be fair, Kelsey, I question whether I've listened to every single episode of Dear Hank and John. Yeah, no, I had, I had, uh, I had mostly forgotten about this, and I was like, wait, is there, wait. And thank goodness I checked. Um, so yeah. I have completely forgotten about it. I re-researched whether you can sneeze underwater. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can. I mean, if we made a podcast about whether or not you can sneeze underwater, 
what else that happened to me have I totally forgotten? I know. Hank, before we get to the all-important news from Mars and AFC Wimbledon, we did receive one important correction this week from Eliza, who wrote, Dear John and Hank, in last week's episode, there was a question about what the high seas are. My family is leaving this year to sail around the world, and so we have learned a lot about the ocean. By the way, Eliza, you couldn't have picked a better time. (laughs) High seas refer to the parts of the ocean that are not owned by any country, like the middle of the Atlantic. It can also Mm. refer to huge waves like the big scary waves. Hope that helped. I've never burned letters. Oh, Eliza. That's a Hamilton reference. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't get it. Uh, But yes, that is true. And we did not say that the high seas are often defined as international waters. Mm. And that is an important definition. Also, I just think it's interesting that Eliza is about to spend a year sailing around the world. Eliza, good luck to you and your family. One more thing, Hank, over at the Patreon at patreon.com slash Dear Hank and John, you don't have to donate or anything to get this, but we're going to post this amazing picture that was sent to us by Ashley of the difference between a scuba and a tuba. (laughs) It's a very good picture. It's It's high quality, high quality entertainment. Thank you, Ashley. Hank. John. AFC Wimbledon is still, like so many of us, living in a state of uncertainty. Still. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? I mean, I thought last week we kind of figured out that it, that you guys were staying up and that the season wasn't going to happen. Mm, yeah. Well, it still hasn't happened. Like, that was a report. And it seemed like a well-sourced report because there were a bunch of clubs like commenting on it. Mm-hmm. But mm, mm. it hasn't happened. It's very confusing to me why other leagues have either decided to have a plan to play behind closed doors like the Bundesliga has. Right. Or they've decided to cancel the season entirely, like they have in France, mm-hmm. or they've decided to kind of freeze the season where it is, declare a champion based on who's currently winning the league, like they have in Scotland. But in England, they've done nothing. <laughs> so I uh, okay. all of the proposals that I have seen would result in AFC Wimbledon still being in League One next year. Mm-hmm. But But who knows? Maybe there will be another proposal. Exactly. And at at what point, like, eventually, I feel like I I feel like I need to call the English Football Association and inform them that eventually their next season will start. (laughs) (laughs) And you will not. You will have had to decide something by then. Yeah. So there is going to be some kind of like summit where the owners are going to decide something. There has also been a rumor that League Two, the fourth division of English football, where AFC Wimbledon plied its trade for for several years, Mm -hmm. uh, might merge with the fifth tier of English football and then have a geographic-based thing where there's like teams in the north and teams in the south, Mm -hmm. like Game of Thrones. And that uh, would not hopefully affect Wimbledon, except it would affect them if they got relegated. Right. So there's a lot of uncertainty, just as there is in every other field of life right now. Please tell me that there is good news from Mars. Um, there's fine news from Mars. So researchers have been doing more experiments to figure out what inside Mars looks like. Uh, this is a theory. Like, this is a thing that we're interested in for a number of reasons. And we think that Mars 
In the inside, the core is made of an iron-sulfur alloy, uh, but you cannot dig to the middle of Mars to check. You can't even dig like three feet into Mars. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, inches even. Uh, but the InSight lander, which is the lander that has been attempting to dig into Mars, is using seismic data. So there are a, a number of functioning experiments on InSight, just not this drill thing which is still giving everybody trouble. But in order to do that, you have to figure out what an iron-sulfur alloy actually looks like. And this isn't the thing that happens outside of, like, the pressures inside of, like, a planetary-scale thing. Mm. So obviously lots of lots of uh, weight is pushing down on the core of Mars. Uh, not as much as on Earth, but still a lot. But we can do that on Earth using something called a multi-anvil press, which is basically like there's a, there's two big things that push on two smaller things that push on the tips of two diamonds. Uh, and those diamonds, all that pressure gets uh, focused on a very, very tiny area. And this is how we push the hardest that we are able to push and basically simulate pressures that would happen like on the inside of of planets. Wow. So they tested the iron sulfur alloy at various pressures meant to mimic the Martian conditions and at, a, at around 1500 degrees Celsius and 13 gigapascals of pressure, a seismic wave will travel at a certain speed. Um, so at 4,680 meters per second, that's about 13 times the speed of sound in air. And uh, so that tells us how fast like a seismic wave would travel if the interior of Mars were made of this stuff. So they were able to extrapolate what P waves in the alloy might look like at the in the core of Mars, and that will help scientists figure out when they get all this seismic data gathered by InSight if it matches mm. the alloy that they created in this giant mm. press on Earth. That's fascinating, but I have to say the biggest takeaway for me is that the next time I have to explain to someone how much pressure I feel like I'm under, I'll be able to say <laughs> I'm under 13 billion gigapascals of pressure right now, okay? Yeah. So just take a step back, please. <laughs> just, yeah. Anytime you get to use the word gigapascal yeah. is a win. It's a good day. Definitely. It's a good day. Yeah. Well, Hank, thank you for potting with me. It has been a great pleasure. And thanks to everybody who wrote in at hankandjohn at gmail.com this week. We were utterly inundated with the emails this week, as we are every week, but this week especially. So thanks to everybody who wrote in. Sorry to all the questions we didn't answer. John, this podcast is edited by Joseph Tunamedish. It's produced by Rosiana Hals-Rojas and Sheridan Gibson. Our communications coordinator is Paolo Garcia Prieto. The music you're hearing now is by the great Gunnarola. And as they say in our hometown, don't forget, Don't forget to, to be, be awesome. awesome.